After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, "'Teacher, I brought you my son, "'whom is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. "'Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. "'He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. "'I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. "'You unbelieving generation,' Jesus replied. "'How long shall I stay with you? "'How long shall I put up with you? "'Bring the boy to me.' "'So they brought him.' When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, it has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, This kind can come out only by prayer. Shall we pray together before Mike comes to speak with us? Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the privilege it is to sit under it this morning and to listen and hear from you. We pray, please, you would open our hearts and our ears and our minds to hear what you have to say to us through Mike this morning. Thank you for him and the message you've given uh, to him to speak to us today. We pray, Father, please, by your Holy Spirit, you would help us to listen well, that you would not leave us, not let us leave here today unchallenged um, or changed. Please, would you change us to be more like Jesus through your word this morning as we listen. 
And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Kate and John and Matt and Catherine. Um, I'm Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. I'll be speaking from that passage in God's Word, and then John will continue with the rest of our time of worship. Um, Some time ago, a man called Daniel Goleman published a book called Emotional Intelligence. Emotional Intelligence, Why It Can Matter More Than IQ. And Goleman argued that our view of human intelligence is too narrow, and that actually emotions play a huge role in our thoughts, our decision-making, and how we actually succeed as individuals. And he claims that the people who excel in life often have a higher EQ, emotional intelligence, that they are, relationships tend to flourish and that they're often stars in the workplace. So it's not just about being brainy, but having that EQ. And Goldman talks about something called the marshmallow test. Now, in this test, a researcher invites a child into a room and gives her a marshmallow on a plate. And the researcher tells the child, you can eat that immediately if you want, um, but I've got to pop out and run an errand. And then the researcher makes a key offer. If you wait until I come back, then you can have two marshmallows. And then he leaves the room. Now, what will the child do? Some children just gobble the marshmallow down immediately. Some hold out for a few minutes, just looking at it, and then they just think, ah, (laughs) and they buckle. But some wait until the researcher returns quite a long time after in order to get that second marshmallow. They don't know how long they have to wait. Now, they do everything they can to stave off temptation while the researcher is out of the room. And Goleman, the author, suggests that the kind of people kind of children who resist eating the marshmallow grow up to be better adjusted, more popular, more adventurous, more confident, and more dependable. See, that's where we all went wrong. (laughs) They weren't controlled by their emotions. Those who give in are more likely to buckle under stress later in life and shy away from challenges. What's the point here? There are some qualities that help you become more resilient in life. I think we all know this, it's not rocket science. If you're able to live with uncertainty and ambiguity, if you're able to defer gratification and put off having something and wait for it, it's a good quality, isn't it? If you're able to develop the kind of character that endures hardship and challenges, All of these things help us to be more resilient in life, and that's as true of everybody. But there's something in this here that applies to the Christian life as well. Now, in the 1980s, I was a member of a church youth group here at this church. Those were golden days, you know, the 1980s. Puffy jackets, bangles, and big hair. And that was just the boys. But something special was happening in that youth group on a spiritual level, quite apart from the hairspray. A group of ordinary kids from a working-class background heard the gospel, and God got hold of them. And they were gripped by the Bible, and it was like they just took off. I've never really seen anything like it since. 
it was a time where many, many people were pressing into the youth work and asking questions and then becoming Christians and their lives really changing noticeably. And then they were bringing friends and friends and siblings and even parents were coming in and hearing the gospel and being converted. And some of you are from that time. It was a time of changed lives, a, change of seri- a time of seriousness about Christian things. Young teenagers from Chesington getting together and reading a book called Holiness by a 19th century bishop, J.C. Ryle. I mean, who does that? Because they wanted to be holy. And there was a sort of spiritual power there. It was, everything seemed to go well. It was an amazing time. Over 30 years have passed since then. What became of those eager young converts? Now, many of them have continued strong in faith, growing closer to Jesus over the years, no matter what life has thrown at them. But others wilted and walked away from Christ within a few short years, including the most gifted one. Now, what made the difference? I've often thought about that. Here's what I've observed over time. The ones who carried on strong are the ones who've been able to endure disappointment and hardship by growing in God's word and prayer, depending on God. It wasn't that they were more intelligent, more gifted, or stronger, or anything like that. No, no, it was no discernible difference in the kind of background. It was that just that they were able to endure the hardships of the life of faith by bringing their lives under the rule of Jesus and depending on him, which is shown in prayer. In some ways, it's so simple, isn't it? And yet... So those young people were able to make choices to obey Jesus that cost them. They were able to cope with life going wrong. They could face opposition and indifference and an intellectual climate that's often cold because they continued to listen to God's word over, the t- over time, believe it, and put it into practice when life was more challenging. Now, we might imagine that the early years of following Jesus are the hardest, But is that really true? Many Christians find that as they go on, the later years are more difficult. Tom Wright, professor at St. Andrews University, says this, precisely when you learn to walk beside Jesus, you are given harder tasks, which will demand more courage, more spiritual energy. Did we suppose following Jesus was like a summer holiday. That's what our text is about today. How to be a disciple when things get tough. It's not a summer holiday. What we learn in Mark 9 is this. I've tried to put it in one sentence. Actually, two sentences. Followers of Jesus spend most of their lives in the valley, not on the mountaintop. So, We need strong faith, which comes from prayer and close attention to God's word. I'll say it again. It's not that memorable. I couldn't come up with anything better. Followers of Jesus spend most of their life in the valley, not on the mountaintop. So we need strong faith. And that comes from listening to his voice and depending on him in prayer. Two points today. Glory on the mountain, life in the valley. Glory on the mountain. If you've closed your Bible, please open it up again to Mark chapter 9, 
That's page 1012. And we've, we have two accounts here. The first is headed in our Bibles here, the transfiguration. And the second is about healing a boy possessed with an impure spirit. Now, every culture has its own founding stories, episodes from the past where great heroes did great things and the nation was established. And for the Jewish people, their founding story was the Exodus. It was an amazing time in their history. It was a time when the living God stretched out his mighty arm and intervened in history to save a slave nation. And it's hard for us to imagine, but we can, I think, with the, looking at the 20th century, what it was like to be an Israelite. Uh, at ethnically defined slavery. Actually, genocide was practiced against them. Their baby boys were, were wiped out at one point. So there was a, a racist slavery. They were abused, a slave nation. And yet God had a special heart for this people, people group, and he rescued them by a might, an, an outstretched arm and a mighty hand, it says. And you will remember, if, you've, if you know your Bible, or even if you've seen one of the Hollywood films about this, the ten plagues or signs that God did to rescue his people. A plague of blood, the river Nile turned to blood. Plagues of flies, plagues on the livestock. Plagues of, of frogs. And what God was doing was humiliating the gods of Egypt and showing that there was only one God, and it was him. And there was no other. And he saved his people. And the final plague, the hardest of all, after the plague of darkness, was the sign of judgment on the firstborn, where the firstborn in every household was killed, except for those that had blood on the doorposts and on the lintel of the house, the blood of a lamb. And there the angel of death passed over. An amazing time in the history of the nation. And they remembered it every year from ancient times with an amazing Vivid recreation of that called the Passover feast. Wow! After the great escape from Pharaoh, they traveled through the desert to a high mountain. They set up camp. The founding leader, Moses, prepared to go up the mountain to meet with God. Moses alone was allowed to approach God. It says this, when Moses went up the mountain, the cloud covered it. Notice the cloud the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. What a voice that must have been. And to the Israelites the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Because they're down at the bottom standing back. It looks like a fire up there burning but it won't go out. It's concealed by this cloud. And then Moses goes up and he steps into the cloud and encounters the living God. Now on that same mountain, God revealed his essential nature, his character to Moses. This is what it says in Exodus chapter 34. The Lord came down in the cloud and he stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming this, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth 
generation. An awesome vision. God revealed his truth to Moses on that mountain in an extraordinary way. He gave him the ten words, we call them the ten commandments, which were written on two tablets of stone, two copies. These are ten words to show us the essential truth about how life is to be conducted and how human life is to flourish. And when Moses came down from that mountain and that encounter, the Bible says he was not aware that his face was radiant. His face was shining because he'd spoken with the Lord. He actually had to be covered with a veil. His face reflected the glory of God's presence and people were actually afraid to come near Moses because they never saw anything like this. And all of that, friends, is the backdrop to the passage that Kate just read. At the transfiguration, Jesus takes his three closest disciples with him up a mountain and there he reveals his glory. His glory. Verse 2. Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. And there he was transfigured before them. Transfigured or transformed. What does this mean? They saw Jesus Christ for who he really was. The veil of ordinariness was lifted for a moment and they caught a glimpse of the true splendor of Jesus. All this time they'd spent walking around with this joiner from Nazareth, listening to his teaching as their rabbi. But they had no idea really who they were dealing with. Now they see this is Jesus, the Lord of glory. And verse 3, actually language starts straining. The writer is struggling to describe it. Verse 3, his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than, what do you say? Whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. <laughs> I was thinking of the whitest thing. Whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. No laundry on earth could match this. In other words, a dazzling glory emanates from Jesus himself. A brilliance that no human power can produce. Jesus is shining out the very glory of God. He's not reflecting it like Moses did. He is it. And then in verse 4, two of the greatest heroes of Bible history appear and they talk with Jesus. What? Verse 4, they appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Now why these two? Moses is the greatest prophet, the heroic rescuer. And Elijah was the prophet who was said, it was predicted that Elijah would return and herald the new world order when the Messiah came. Now, when readers who knew their Bible hear the word Elijah, their ears tend to pick up because the Old Testament, our Old Testament, ends with the Italian prophet Malachi. And Malachi chapter 4 ends with these words. So this is like right before that blank page that says the New Testament. This is right at the end of the Old Testament for us. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He, Elijah, will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. 
or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Now, those are weighty words, aren't they? They are echoing down history. We're waiting to see who this Elijah figure is who's going to come and call us back and, what does it say? Turn the hearts of people to each other. So they're waiting for this Elijah figure. Now, what's happening out on the mountain? Moses, Elijah are there. And all of this, by the way, is for the benefit of the disciples. Jesus doesn't need to chat with Moses and Elijah. It's for the benefit of the disciples because they see that the great figures of their Bible, the law and the prophets, are here submitting and endorsing Jesus. All that they spoke about and worked for is come right here and now to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And then in verses 5 to 6, we have an astonishing scene. What do you say when you're in an episode like that? What would you say? You know, some people, when they're really scared, they go really quiet. I'm one of those people. Other people start to blabber and blurt out the first thing that comes to mind. Are you one of those people who opens their mouth before engaging brain? You know, Peter, you can be encouraged, Peter is one of them. We might call him a verbal processor. Look what he says in verse 5. Uh, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Pause. What are we going to do now? Uh, let us put up three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Verse 6. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Now, Peter, a very, very old tradition, says that Mark wrote down Peter's preaching. And Mark is particularly hard on Peter. All the way through, Mark gives Peter much more of a kicking than any of the other Gospels. And it's probably because Peter gave him permission. He said, I, I am an idiot. I always have been, let it be written down, the truth of what it was. I was up the mountain. Yeah, I saw Jesus transfigured. He said, you know what I thought? Let's make three tents. I did it. And uh, it admits there, they didn't really know what to say. They were so terrified. Now, now this idea of three shelters isn't quite as ridiculous as, as it first appears. Peter's not thinking of the Boy Scouts, you know, have to build a bivouac with a load of sticks. <laughs> there was a tradition here. One of the main festivals in the Jewish calendar is called the Feast of Booths. Booths, like the, uh, the shop, or like Paul Booth. Uh, one of the main festivals is a time when they, they actually commemorated the Exodus. You know, they were brought out from Egypt and led through, and they lived in temporary shelters in the wilderness. And so in Leviticus chapter 23, it commanded that during this feast to remember the Exodus time, they would live in a hut or a booth for seven days to celebrate the time when they lived, their forefathers lived in temporary shelters. So in some ways, you can see that Peter is trying to respond appropriately some ways but he is falling terribly short of what's really going on notice he calls Jesus rabbi now that is surely by now being seen to be a grave understatement of who Jesus really is and verse 7 has this incredible business with a cloud and remember there was a cloud came down on Mount Sinai verse 7 a cloud appeared and it covered them and a voice came from the cloud this is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Now, whenever God appears to be people in the Bible, in the Old Testament, he appears 
in a cloud. Because the cloud enables God to manifest his glory and his presence without the people being completely overwhelmed by it. The cloud is kind of like a protecting buffer for us. And a voice comes from within this cloud, and it's the voice of God the Father. This is my son, who I love. Listen to him. And there's an echo, because remember, if you've been around for a few months, we, when we started Mark's gospel, when Jesus was baptized at the beginning of Mark chapter 1, there a voice spoke from heaven, and it said, You are my son, whom I love. But on that occasion, nobody else heard it. This time, the three disciples do. They hear the voice of God himself speaking audibly, speaking in a language that they can understand, and they are the first people in Mark's gospel to do this. And what is God saying to them? Imagine if God spoke to you, you would probably remember it, wouldn't you? He says, listen to him. Now, there are some moments in life which are so meaningful, they alter your perception of life forever. Um, science, some science teachers love the moment when a child first looks down a microscope. Wow! Have you ever done that? You see there's a whole world of detail down there you never had any idea of. Suddenly, the whole of reality looks different because of that microscope. Or if you've ever looked through a telescope at the stars and seen just how big the universe is or just got a sense of it. Or maybe you've been present at the birth of a baby and heard that cry. There are moments in life that alter our perception forever. And for Peter, James, and John, this was one of them. They never forgot it. Many years later, Peter, by then an apostle and a leader of the church, wrote a letter. We know of it as 2 Peter or 2 Peter, and this is what he wrote. We did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. You see how important it was to them? It changed them forever. And what was the main point that that majestic, glorious voice said? It was this, listen to him. And that's for us too. You know, you only have about 35 minutes on a Sunday morning to hear a sermon 25 minutes on a Sunday evening to hear a sermon. I know you can get sermons on podcasts and things. We have so many voices, messages, sources of information pressing in on us all week long, coming through devices that we carry with us. And we, 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 from the moment we wake, some of us, to the moment we sleep, the device is beaming in words from other sources. And God says to us Christians, listen to him. So this transfiguration is actually all for the disciples' benefit to give them an all-important lesson for life. And it's the lesson that we need today. It is we've got to listen to Jesus' words if we're going to make it in the valley. Or we will fall too. And some of you are thinking, yeah, I know that. I know we have to listen to Jesus' words. I even do a quiet time every morning. I've got a Bible reading plan. Good. I'm, I'm so glad. But hang on. 
just hang on a minute. You know, you could know something in your head without it being real to your heart. I've known people who were incredible, had incredible Bible knowledge. It was almost like they were the trivial pursuits of the Bible. If you were a pub quiz with a Bible around, you'd want to wheel them in quick. But they weren't changed by it. Now, we're going to see very soon why this lesson was so important. But first, we need to notice for the disciples that the penny didn't drop immediately. They don't have a sudden paradigm shift where everything suddenly becomes clear. Even when the cloud lifts, right? The cloud lifts, verse 9, uh, verse 8. They look around, there's no, there's no one with them except Jesus. They are still very much in a mental fog. And in verses 9 to 13, Jesus orders them not to tell anyone what they'd seen until he had risen from the dead. And for once, someone actually obeys Jesus and, and doesn't go and blab the secret because they're really preoccupied with something that he's just said. What does he mean? He's going to rise from the dead. What's that about? Now, remember, we mustn't assume the disciples were the 12 most stupid men in the world. They are wrestling with this claim of Jesus because of their entire belief system. Their whole culture and all the intellectual authorities in their culture taught that there would be a future day of judgment, at which point God would raise all the dead, the righteous from the dead, all of them at one time at the future day of judgment. That was what they understood from the scriptures. And so now, hang on a minute, Jesus is saying he's going to rise from the dead. So they naturally start to question, what, on his own? Just one person rising from the dead? How does that fit with the timeline? Which we've been taught our entire lives. So they're trying to piece this timeline together. And they put another question to Jesus in verse 11. And again, it's drawn from the, the, the religious authorities of their time. Verse 11, why do the teachers of the law, these are the experts, why do they say that Elijah must come first? Remember that quote earlier on from Malachi 4? Jewish thinkers had correctly seen that the prophet identified as Elijah would come and herald the special king, the Messiah, who comes to set the world to rights. So the disciples here are reasoning about when this Elijah might turn up. And Jesus says, yes, you're absolutely right. You are right about Elijah coming. Verse 12. Have a look. To be sure. Almost sounds Irish there. To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores, restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. So who was this Elijah who has already come? Mark leaves it hanging here. But readers of the book can join the dots. Someone was introduced back in chapter 1, wearing a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And these are vintage, retro Elijah clothes. This same person had made the most powerful preaching claim, the most powerful call to come back to God for centuries. And thousands of people had gone out to him, and the hearts of parents had been turned to the children and, and vice versa. And in chapter 6, we read that that person was imprisoned, falsely, cruelly treated, and then beheaded. That was Elijah. 
and we know him as John the Baptist. And so Jesus says that, he's Elijah, and he's pointing out that what happened to John the Baptist will also happen to himself. Jesus too must suffer much and be rejected. That has been God's plan all along. But he will rise. Now what does all this mean for us? Two things. Firstly, the glory, the radiance of Jesus shows us that he's not simply a man, but deity himself. God incarnate. Whereas Moses reflected brightness, Jesus radiates it. The glory is divine, and that is a stupendous claim. Jesus is revealing here he is the very glory of God. It shines out of him. The voice of God endorses him. But the fact that the disciples are there, the fact that they see it, shows us something that's unspeakably lovely. Jesus is not only God himself, glorious and awesome, he is also the way to approach God. He takes those silly guys up the mountain with him. He's the way for us to approach the unapproachable. He lets the likes of us go in. You know, Moses wanted to see God and God refused. You can't do it. But here the disciples do. So we not only see that Jesus is God in the flesh, the one who made and sustains the universe, now we learn that he's the bridge, the access for us to reach into the presence of God himself. He is the God we need and the way to come into the presence of God. And he wants us there. He's thrown wide the doors. to come in. And oh, how we would want to stay up there on the mountain where everything was beautiful. Such joy up there. So tranquil, away from the grief and pain of life. All the stress. We might want to stay up there too, wouldn't we? Enjoying the blessed vision. Why not? Wouldn't you? But that's not the plan. Because most of our lives are spent down in the valley and that's where Jesus takes them. From that vision down, down to the valley. And this is where we spend most of life. Second point is much quicker. Life in the valley. Glory on the mountaintop, life in the valley. What is life like down here in the valley? Verse 14. They came to the other disciples. They saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Life in the valley is chaotic. It's disordered. It's busy. There's all these people there. They're arguing. It's hostile. The disciples are arguing with the teachers of the law, which probably means the disciples are losing. And here that someone, you know, remember they've had a, they've had a, a, a been on mission with Jesus. Now Jesus isn't with them. Someone brings brings this boy and they think right here we go you know and what happens they can't do it it's failure it's embarrassing 
They're experiencing shame. And the big problem underlying all of it, according to Jesus, is unbelief. Verse 19, you unbelieving generation. Unbelief characterizes life in the valley. We can't believe God. Don't just think I'm talking about non-Christians. Unbelief is the biggest problem in all of our lives. The reason why we find certain circumstances so difficult is we just can't believe that God would let do that. Because we know better than God, don't we? I mean, I have a much better plan for my life than God does. If only he would catch up with it. Because my plan doesn't involve suffering at all. It involves quite a lot of money. God just hasn't caught up with me. How arrogant we are. Unbelief. The legal experts don't believe. The disciples don't believe. Only the father has belief, but even he's a little bit dodgy. Look, his belief is that curious mixture. Lord, I do believe. <coughs> Help now my unbelief. Oh, I love this guy. I, lo- I love this guy. I'm so glad that verse is in the Bible. That's me. Lord, I do believe. Help now my unbelief. I'm always a mixture. Aren't you? Now, there's this terrible demon possession, this spirit that's robbed him of speech. It seizes him. It's like it comes and goes. It throws this boy on the ground. He foams at the mouth. He gnashes his teeth. He becomes rigid. It throws him in the fire. It's terrible. It's evil. There's real evil in the valley, and there still is today. What is the point of this section? It's that followers of Jesus must spend most of their lives in the valley, not on the mountaintop. So how are we going to survive? What do we need in life? You need to listen to him. That's why this comes right after that. We're going to need faith, which comes from listening to him and depending on him in prayer. We see this in the story. Look at verse 29 at the end. He replied, you know what? They ask him privately, oh, why couldn't we drive this, this demon out? Answer, this kind can come out only by prayer. And isn't that an interesting thought? Isn't prayer about the most feeble, weak thing you could do? I mean, when you're praying, you're not actually doing anything, are you? We even used to teach kids to put their hands together so they're not doing stuff and their eyes closed just to concentrate. So when you're praying, you're actually the most useless person on earth, it looks like. Prayer is absolutely dependent on somebody else who most people in our country don't think exists. Prayer apparently is useless, but it is actually incredibly powerful because of the one we depend on. So whether we pray or not is a test of how much we believe, isn't it? If you've given up praying, it's because you don't believe. You say, oh, I did pray for a while about it, but then um, um, God never answered, and so I, I turned hard against him. I'm bitter. I don't pray anymore. That's because you're unbelieving in the first place, friend. These disciples seem to have thought that they could learn some technique and now they could cast out a demon. No, no, no. The battles of the life of faith can only be won by total dependence on God, not on yourself. And God brings us low in order to teach us that. That's the point of prayer. You are actually not, you are not doing anything but leaning on God in naked dependence. We need to prayer if we're going to survive in the valley. We also need to listen to him. Remember that voice from the mountain again. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. 
Why is this so important? Because we will not be sustained by experiences. We will not be sustained by feelings. Even religious ones. We will not be sustained by visions, but by the word of God himself. He, Jesus himself quoted the Old Testament when he was challenged by the devil. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Because you see, down in the valley, you can't see God. Your life I'm talking about here. You can't see God. You can't see this glorious radiance. There's no glorious present experience. All you have is his word to you. His promise. You have his, his word in, in the scriptures. So then, Christian friend here, is the word controlling your response to life? Or is your life controlling your response to the word? This doesn't happen overnight, by the way. We have to keep walking with it for years and years and years and years. Psalm 1, the greatest uh, gateway to the Psalms. Uh, Blessed, happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is on the law of the Lord. Law, teaching, guidance. His delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. So the image there in the psalm is of a person like a tree. Trees take a long time to grow. There's a tree in the middle of my garden. I think that tree will not have fully grown by the time I die. There'll just be the tree left and our tortoise. Take a long time. So to, if the person who, who is happy, who doesn't walk in the counsel of this world, is the one who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night, that's the, all the time, and their re- roots go down deep, they're next to the water, and they're bearing fruit, and their leaf doesn't wither. It's a long-term bringing of your life, your spirit, under God's word, particularly when you are hurt. particularly when you're hurt. You're disappointed, you're suffering, you've been betrayed. Just process with me for a moment. What do you do? Where do you tend to go when you're hurting? Is it, is it to the bottle? Just need to numb those feelings and a gin and tonic or a whiskey or a bottle of wine is the way to go. You're not letting the word, you're not listening to him, you're drowning your sorrows. Is it to some other kind of addiction, pornography, which um, is so advanced, it has driven most of the developments in the internet. Pornography is so advanced that it stimulates the pleasure sent sensations of the brain and does something to your brain chemistry as well as to your body to take you away from pain but oh how how ugly you feel afterwards when life is hurting do you lash out do you find someone else to hurt do you go into yourself misery 
do you, do you go into to such a spiral of depression and anxiety that there's nothing can be done for you? Just where do you go? Now listen, these things are real. We live in the real world. We live in the valley. We've got to be real with each other about all this. The only way you're going to come out of this and grow is if you bring God's word into your very heart and say, Lord, I'm really struggling with this. I don't know where to go. I'm just going to sit with you and tell you I'm hurting. Speak to me now. And he will. Some people become Christians and they have great expectations. There's a honeymoon period. It's lovely. That's great. But look, real life has a way of not working out. And in our heart of hearts, we find ourselves saying, I didn't sign up for this. It wasn't supposed to be like this. And that's the point where you're either going to give up or walk forward and grow in faith and prayer through the word. I once knew a man who had an ecstatic experience at Durham University. He wasn't a Christian. He went to a Christian union meeting. They were playing lovely music and they were all singing. And actually during that meeting, he had an encounter with God, I think. Uh, he, he experienced something of the presence of God. I'd never, I'd never had this. But he did. It blew him away. It was electrifying. It was transcendent. It was wonderful. He decided to follow Christ that night. Great. But he was forever struggling as a Christian. He was forever disappointed. He could never find a church where he would settle because he never had the experience again. Because he wanted to have those ecstatic feelings time and again. And those things are not given very often. We're given our daily bread, the word of God, to live on. You can't live on the mountaintop because we live in the valley. So what things are facing you this week? Where will you be this time tomorrow? What kind of confusion will you be dealing with? What kind of stress? Will you be facing some kind of brokenness? Maybe even hostility? Will there be disappointment in your life and, and shame and failure these things are all in our text and what we learn here is that what we need today and tomorrow and the rest of our lives is to have strong faith which comes from prayer and listening to his voice so let's pray that God will give us that let's pray Lord we just thank you that you are so real and yet you're so glorious you don't just leave us where you find us you're taking us somewhere better. We've had a vision, just a glimpse. We've greeted it from afar. We look forward to it. We long to be in your presence where just to see you, we will be like you. And yet we're living in this valley. We don't know how long for. So we pray now, even in this next part of the service, refresh our minds, give us strength and new courage, and help us to learn how to lean on each other as well. For we ask it in your name. Amen. Uh, we're going to sing. It's quite a short song, uh, but it fixes our eyes on the Lord Jesus. All heaven declares. Please, would you stand?